Welcome to the Sano Genetics Podcast. I'm Patrick, the co-founder and CEO of Sano, and today our guest on the show is Dr. Alicia Martin. Alicia is a researcher at the Massachusetts General Hospital and the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. The Broad Institute is one of the world-leading human genetics and genome sequencing centers uh, based in Boston in the U.S. Alicia's research crosses over between human population genetics as well as medical genetics, and she has a particular focus on psychiatric disorders and how genetic risk scores translate between people with different ethnicities and ancestries. I hope I got that right, and thanks very much for coming on the show, Alicia. Yeah, thanks for having me. That sounds good to me. Great. So would you mind just giving us an overview on how you got into studying genetics in the first place? Sure. Yeah. So I've been interested in genetics my whole life, pretty much um, due to personal reasons. So my brother was actually born with cystic fibrosis. And so for um, family reasons, I've always been following the literature. Well, you know, not as a five-year-old or anything, but I've always been very interested in genetics and trying to understand what it means for different families and how we can try to overcome genetic disorders and how we can treat offer new treatments um, for those types of disorders. So I've been interested in this for decades. <laughs> right. So is this something that lots of members of the family work on? Or are you the lone Martin that's working in genetics? <laughs> I'm very much the black sheep and the lone scientist in my family, but generally very supportive of research engagement. Absolutely. So in the last few years, you've led several pieces of very important research focused around the issue of Eurocentricity in genetic studies. Would you mind just explaining exactly why this is such a big problem and also how you think about solving it? Yeah, so we've been looking at Eurocentricity for a long time, and we've known since basically genetic studies have started to ramp up that we've had this really big Eurocentric problem. So there was a study in about 2009 that showed that 96% of participants in genetic studies were of European descent. Clearly that's really problematic and far out of step with the global population where European ancestry individuals make up roughly about 16% of the global population. So this is really a big um, health inequities issue if we're starting to think about translating genetic technologies. But this message is not new. I mentioned that study in 2009, so it's been now a decade. And here, looking at 2019, um, we've seen that now the proportion of individuals of European descent only constitute a mere 80% <laughs> of the individuals that make up those uh, research participants. So this is a really big issue, and it hasn't changed as much as we would like it to, to reflect the global representation of individuals. And so I've always been asking this question in my research how does the knowledge that we gain from genetic studies actually translate across these globally diverse populations? Um, given that we have such a biased and Eurocentric view, how much does that actually matter? We know that the fundamental biology is shared across diverse human populations, but those genetic variants differ in frequency and all sorts of different factors due to human population history. So that's generally how I became interested in it and like what we've kind of been exploring in broad terms over time. Right. So is, is there any example that you like to use that's particularly poignant? I know you study psychiatric genetics, but I've also heard you give height um, as a good example of this. Um, I think height is a really nice and tangible one, as you mentioned. Height is very easy to measure. We've measured it in many, many millions of people that we've also measured genetic data in. So it's really easy to capture. Um, and when we actually try to predict something like height using genetic data, we do a much better job predicting it in people of European descent due to these vast Eurocentric study biases. It's not that there's anything special about height in someone of European descent compared to someone, say, of African descent. It's simply, you know, a consequence of their genetic makeup and who we're studying. 
So if we try to look at height in different populations using existing studies, there's a lot of dependency on what study we're looking at in terms of uh, how well we're predicting these um, different traits. So looking at height, um, if we try to predict um, using these Eurocentric uh, studies across a globally diverse set of populations, we predict most accurately how tall European individuals are. But the problem is sort of insidious actually beyond that, because when we look at how well we predict across different populations, there's also these mean shifts. And so we try to compare um, height across different populations from a genetics perspective, we're predicting that European populations are the tallest and that everybody else is shorter than Europeans. But it's not that they're sort of a little bit shorter. The problem is pretty dramatic. So like if we take the average European man and say maybe, sorry for the um, US-centric measuring system, but <laughs> maybe you can convert this. If we say that the average European man is something like five feet nine inches tall, and then predict how tall the average African man is, by some, um, some standard large-scale genetic studies, we would predict that the average African man would be like four and a half feet tall. Right, so these scores are essentially completely meaningless once you take them out of the group you originally trained them on. Exactly, and it really depends on the study that we're looking at. So if we look at other studies that have less heterogeneity, then we'll predict the differences to be smaller, but we'll still not capture those differences well. So right now, it's just not possible to compare across populations using genetic data based on polygenic prediction alone. And I guess height, you know, this example is not a particularly medically relevant one, but if you take what you said and applied it to heart attack risk or stroke, or hereditary cancers, then it becomes apparent that the problem is really huge, right? We can't, we just can't have a score that only works in Europeans. Exactly, yeah, totally. If we think about something like say schizophrenia, we don't have dramatic differences in prevalence across different populations, but from a genetic risk prediction perspective, if you're drawing that cutoff uh, to say someone has schizophrenia or not based on their genetic data, it just doesn't work. So we're really sort of struggling with that right now. So what is the solution for this? Is it as simple as being more representative of the world population when we do these genetic studies, or is there something else beyond that that we need to be doing? Um, I think we need kind of to push on two fronts. So one is absolutely we need much greater diversity in our representation of individuals. And then the other is we need better statistical methods um, to try to build these genetic predictors that better account for this, these differences in population history and genetic diversity. So do you see this as this problem as a non-starter in a sense when it comes to translating genomic risk scores into the clinic or into medical practice? So I know there's a lot of discussion around risk scores for cardiovascular disease, for example, and the fact that they don't work on everybody equally. Is it irresponsible in a way if, if in the UK, for example, they were to say we're going to start using these scores tomorrow and applying them to everyone? The, the fact that they don't work as well for everyone um, is this a barrier to rolling it out or is actually rolling it out through a healthcare system maybe a way to solve the problem and get access to better data? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think we need to continue to evaluate that question. And right now, I think it's fairly problematic and it's different from other um, clinical risk factors for a few reasons. If we take something like cardiovascular disease, um, one of the best predictors we have for uh, you know, risk of heart attack is something like LDL cholesterol. LDL cholesterol might, on average, differ across populations at some level due to different environmental effects, but fundamentally, the, um, the biomarker, the measure that we're using, 
fundamentally means the same thing across different populations. So if you have an LDL that's high and a European ancestry individual versus an, an African ancestry individual, that's problematic either way. Um, if we have a genetic risk predictor in a European ancestry individual, it fundamentally it has more meaning than a genetic risk score in an African ancestry individual. And that's really problematic because it means that even though we're looking at basically a biomarker, it's far more meaningful in those European ancestry individuals. And these are not small differences. So when we look at the relative um, prediction accuracy in a European ancestry individual versus an African ancestry individual right now in the UK using large scale UK biobank data, the difference in prediction accuracy is something like four to five fold. So it's not small. Right. So just to put some numbers on this, and, and I might be estimating a little bit here, but if the highest risk group, for example, had, say, 20 to 30 percent lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease in the European ancestry group, then if you looked at a, a different group, the lifetime risk might be more like 10 percent. So it's a huge difference, really, maybe three, like you said, three, four, five times uh, difference using the same score. Yeah, that's right. So so I guess my understanding is that if you take the UK Biobank, for example, it's roughly representative of the UK population in terms of people of European ancestry and non-European, but it's still vast majority European. So to solve the problem, do we need to basically intentionally boost sample size or recruit people from underrepresented ancestries for, for these studies? Yeah, exactly. So this is a global issue. We can't solve this with one country with one, with one ancestry or one background, we need to come together as a community in the genetics field to be able to solve this problem because you're totally right that we're not gonna be able to solve this in the UK alone and where I live in the US, we're not gonna be able to solve that in the US alone even though we're currently not representing our own population very well. So what are some of the best examples of people who are solving this? I know I'm off the top of my head, I'm familiar with H3Africa, all of us, for example, in the U.S., um, here in the U.K., there's East London Genes and Health. What are some of the best models to look towards for doing this kind of research right? Yeah, I think you've named a lot of the really big, awesome ones. A few others that are disease-specific that I would highlight are the type 2 diabetes efforts. Um, there are some very big multi-ethnic efforts there, especially that are looking at Hispanic and Latino populations in the Americas with higher prevalences of type 2 diabetes. In the psychiatric space, there are some efforts by the Stanley Center uh, where I work to initiate global collection efforts. So there's a very large scale um, project going on to enhance the scale of uh, collections in Africa right now, especially in Eastern and Southern Africa, which are almost unrepresented in psychiatric studies, uh, psychiatric genetic studies to date. So there's a few others that are disease specific, but I think in terms of the collections of large scale biobanks, you've captured a few. There are others, um, there are other large ones that are going on, for example, in East Asia that are quite large. So there's the Biobank Japan, there's the China Kadori Biobank. Um, there's a few other um, biobanks in East Asia that I think are large growing and are starting to be coupled with um, biobanks of European descent. What role do you think direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies play in all of this? So some of them are obviously huge. I don't know the exact numbers, but my understanding is Ancestry DNA is north of 10 million people. 23andMe is somewhere between 5 and 10 million people. And these also may not be representative in terms of populations or, or include a, a lot of non-European ancestry. Um, but in terms of the raw numbers, they have a huge number of people. Um, so how are they engaging in research around this and what is their responsibility from your perspective in being stewards of the data that they're collecting from their customers and also in working with researchers on this? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think you're right in that they do absolutely have um, a big role to play. And I think they actually have a responsibility to help um, with those inequities and those issues because they're so consumer facing and they are delivering this information to individuals of very diverse um, ancestries. And I know that they're, at least in 23andMe's case, in full disclosure, I have collaborations ongoing with them. Um, they're very interested in expanding the breadth of reach that they can have um, across different ancestries. I know multiple different direct-to-consumer companies are really worried about these inequalities and these issues and are trying to work to build new methods and to uh, share their data, at least in summary form, so that researchers can take advantage of that data to build more equal predictors. Yeah, so from my perspective, I think 23andMe has done better than most in their marketing efforts. They, they do list on the website that certain tests work better or worse um, on people with different ancestries. But to me, what's hard about this is that there's always going to be a group that the test works better or worse in. Even if we were to sequence everybody on the whole continent, there's always going to be biases. So for example, a study in China is probably going to be underrepresented of people in the west of China compared to the east coast. So is it is it going to be until we sequence the entire globe that we don't have these problems? Or, or what do you see as a solution for this? It's a good question. I wouldn't sell genetic short in terms of its ability to grow rapidly and overcome problems. Just looking at the last decade, the progress has been so incredibly impressive to see what people have accomplished, going from studies on the scale of hundreds or thousands to studies now on the scale of millions. It's really awesome to see what is actually possible with these large-scale investments in biomedical research. So I think we'll solve this problem at some point in time to some extent. Yes, there will be limitations in that some populations are going to have uh, more accurate predictors than others. That said, um, I hope these gaps shrink to the point where they're no longer something that we need to worry about to the extent that we do now, so that they're subtle differences as opposed to these massive, you know, orders of magnitude differences or, you know, nearly order of magnitude differences. So I think we need to worry about it a lot at the moment because it's such a huge issue. Um, I hope that this changes over the near term. Um, yeah. It's also concerning, I think, that you know, longer term, we'll need to consider who this works in better, both not just in terms of population, but also in terms of things like age, sex, other factors that influence your health risk overall. Right. And we're probably just getting started. There are also interactions with the environment. I listened to you on another podcast um, with Razib Khan and uh, and I think you discussed that there could be differences in diet, for example, that overlap or somehow combine with genetics. So it's, it seems like there's going to be many different confounders or other factors. And, and ethnicity is probably one of the first that we're starting to tackle, but it's probably almost certainly not the last. Yeah, I totally agree. So this is somewhat related, but I guess a little bit different. I saw you participating in some discussion on Twitter uh, after news came out around this company in the U.S. that's planning to use genetic risk scores to try to select embryos with higher IQ or higher intelligence. I know you have a lot of scientific objections around this, obviously not to mention some of the moral ones. I was wondering if you would mind just describing the idea and, and why you have issues with it, either scientifically or morally, whichever you decide to tackle. Yeah, so I don't want to tackle the moral piece because I feel like there are a lot of folks who are better suited to tackle that one, but I would say I think there is a very strong moral argument to be made. The scientific issues, I would say there are several. So one is that when a couple goes in to do IVF, they only have a few viable offspring between two parents, and there's just not that much genetic variance 
between them um, to choose from. And so really a lot of the polygenic score selection right now would be selling something like snake oil for the choice of an embryo that is going to be a lifelong uh, choice. So that's one problem. Another problem is that if you're trying to positively select on something like IQ, we don't actually know everything about what that means. So for example, positive IQ is also associated with higher risk of autism. That's a single example, but we just kind of need to consider what, um, what all opportunities there are for things to potentially go wrong. Do the risks outweigh the benefits? In this case, possibly. Um, there's several issues that we don't necessarily understand. We just don't really have a full grasp on the risks right now. And I think that's really problematic if you're thinking about this uh, for a child who's going to, you know, exist throughout, um, throughout its entire life. And then another issue is um, this ancestry and ethnicity issue again. So often we're thinking about uh, this in a single easy case, but when it comes to thinking about the entire population, um, there are many biracial couples, there are many couples of non-European descent, and we have no idea um, whether when you're selecting based on a polygenic score for one trait, whether you're actually um, unintentionally selecting for one ancestry background, basically. So let's say we have two African-Americans who want to have a child via IVF and are interested in undergoing this polygenic screening it's possible that just as a consequence of their mixed um, background that they'll be accidentally selecting for those embryos that just have more European ancestry. And so there may be this unintentional sort of like ethnic selection that we really don't want to have happening. Um, and then also just thinking about like, what do you want for your child and for your future? Do you want the smartest possible embryo? Do you want the happiest possible embryo? There's like a whole lot of traits that we care about in humanity. And if you think about the smartest possible person that you know, if that's what you want your child to be, this may or may not be the way to get that, but there's also a lot of things you could, should consider about the smartest person you know. So there's just so many things to consider that I think we don't have a grasp on even remotely yet. So how good are the predictions even though in the best case scenario, how, how well can you predict educational attainment or IQ? My, my understanding is that even in some of the largest studies, they can really only predict one or two IQ points difference. So it's, it's kind of a small difference anyways. Yeah, I think the educational attainment predictor is predicting something on the order of a few months of education. So it's, you know, a few months might be somewhat meaningful, but it's not really going to be a game changer. So again, we, I think kind of need to think about this right now in the context of being not particularly informative. Um, it's helpful, I think, in a research context, but I would be very leery to recommend this to anybody for, a, you know, selecting an embryo. Yeah, I think most people are probably with you on that. And it reminds me, I mean, it kind of, it goes all the way back to Darwin when he noticed that when we breed animals towards one direction, so you know, a basset hound with their long ears or a golden retriever with its golden coat, you, you think that you're selecting for just one thing, but other traits actually come along for the ride. And, and the idea that you look at, you could just look at four embryos, apply a score and, and pick the one that's the best, and then everything is going to be fine from there is, is probably a little bit naive. Yeah, totally. I think we need to have quite a bit of diversity in our population to maintain health. And I think dogs and crops are a very good example of what happens when we do this polygenic selection. Dogs have different kinds of breeds, have cancer issues or hip dysplasia issues or 
brachiocephaly where they have respiratory issues. There's all sorts of challenges that we don't anticipate when we do this kind of polygenic selection with crops as well. When we go towards a monoculture, um, some they're very good at one thing, but they're more susceptible to certain types of uh, um, immune challenges, let's say. So there's all sorts of issues that we might not anticipate, and I'm really concerned about those. So I know a lot of your work is focused around complex conditions and traits or more common conditions and traits, but we have a lot of guests and listeners on the show that are interested in rare and Mendelian disorders. So I was just wondering how how your work might extend into these kind of conditions. Do you see any evidence for differences in performance or diagnostic rates for, for rarer um, conditions compared to some of the common ones that you study? So I'm not too much of an expert in that, but I will say that um, for rare diseases, because we have these strong Eurocentric biases in sequencing data as well um, for diagnosis of rare diseases, we do end up with far more variants of unknown significance in non-European ancestry folks. We also know that some Mendelian diseases that we've thought of as like a classical one gene scenario have a lot of modifiers or actually have a bit of a continuum into the complex disease space. So um, familial hypercholesterolemia, for example, um, is a disease where individuals have much higher uh, cholesterol than average in the population and therefore are at higher risk of heart attack. That's actually a continuum as well, and it seems like there are some polygenic contributors to that, um, to that disease. So I can tell you those two things, but beyond, I'm not the expert for the rare disease. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess you mentioned cystic fibrosis at the very beginning of the conversation. My understanding is that some of the risk variants for cystic fibrosis are, are population specific. So depending on where your grandparents or where their grandparents came from, you may be at much higher or lower risk. So yeah, so I guess maybe, I guess it's possible that we're just not detecting some of the risk factors for some of these rarer conditions in non-European populations just because of the way that testing has been done. Yeah, certainly. So I think in that scenario, we have some variants that we very much nailed down, others that we don't know as well, and also a lot of disease modifiers that may impact, say, the respiratory system or may impact the pancreas, uh, pancreas function. And we just don't have a firm handle on all of the multifactorial uh, contributions to these rare diseases. So just to, to close out here, I know that you're currently in Finland right now and that you spend, I think, one or two months a year there. You're, you're in Boston in the U.S. most of the year, but you um, spend quite a bit of time in Finland. I was wondering if you could just give an overview about what's so unique about the healthcare system there and the research environment that makes it such a hotspot for human genetics. I know there are a couple of really interesting projects going on there right now. Yeah, so Finland is a really interesting place for a few reasons. One is, of course, the population history is a bit unique compared to many parts of the world. So it's a bottlenecked population. Of course, um, humans migrated into Finland with a bottleneck um, compared to other parts of Europe. But there was a subsequent bottleneck once um, individuals were in Finland migrating into the northeastern part of the country. So there's a depletion of genetic diversity in general. So there's a lot of homogeneity in general. Um, the healthcare system is also very, very advanced, I would say. So especially coming from a US perspective, it's amazing to see what these Scandinavian health records have stored. So over the past many decades, um, medical records have been stored in an easily retrievable way. Um, there's a lot of, I think, social buy-in to the healthcare system here. Um, and it's so uniform and homogeneously collected in contrast with the US, for example, 
to the point where it's very easy to do very large-scale genetic studies and large-scale epidemiology, epidemiology studies. So we can really couple these to learn in depth about how different genetic variants are changing over time, tracking uh, rare diseases, looking across the country with different birth records um, to try to understand how these are evolving. And in thinking about the polygenic case um, or the polygenic risk prediction scenario in particular, it's really amazing to see um, these surveys being conducted where in a research setting, people are being given back a risk prediction um, for say cardiovascular disease with their traditional risk factors and then also with their genetic factors and seeing how they respond. Do they engage with the healthcare system if they're at the high end of genetic risk plus clinical risk? And that does seem to be the case here. I think partially because there is so much more trust in the healthcare system, but people are generally going to see their PCP um, at a higher rate than those individuals who are not given their genetic information. So it's just really awesome to see how advanced, um, how advanced their healthcare system is. Right. So that study you're referring to, is that the cardio one? Yeah, yeah. So basically they run a polygenic risk score and, and they give the results back to the participants, whether they're high or low risk, um, and, and then give them the opportunity to engage with a cardiologist or a general practitioner. I guess in many cases, people just choose to make lifestyle or behavior changes uh, as, a, as a result of their genetic test. Yeah, exactly. I think it helps to have such an educated population as well. Just their buy-in to the social healthcare system is very high because their engagement is very strong due to this high education level in general. So it's great to see that they're making lifestyle changes. They're going. They're making diet um, and exercise changes. They're making decisions to go to their GP. Or their um, sorry, their uh, like general practitioner more often. So all of those things I think are really cool. So it seems to me like the next decade, we have a, an opportunity as well as a challenge to kind of try to understand how to make these scores more actionable. So, so we're getting better at predicting and identifying high-risk individuals, but we can't always just kind of give this information and, and expect any change. It's sort of like telling someone that smoking is bad. We, we all know that, but just knowing it doesn't necessarily change our behavior. So it seems to me like one of the big questions now is, is actually about once we have this information, what do we do next and what are the different ways to make it actionable? Yeah, I think we're going to need to educate the public to some extent, but I also think that we can think of this in the same context as other clinical risk factors. You probably don't know what your LDL is because you probably haven't memorized that, for example, but you probably know whether it's high, medium, low, something like that. And I think we can probably break that down for people um, kind of at the same level and couple that with all the other clinical factors to make it a fairly digestible piece of information. And I just was wondering, I know you're, you're the expert on this. Um, you talked about the population bottleneck in Finland, um, and I just find this fascinating. Could you describe from a historical perspective what the size of the bottleneck was? I, I just think it's amazing to think about how many people made it through to this frozen land and, and settled there. Yeah, so I think on the scale of about two to 4,000 years ago, um, something on the scale of hundreds to maybe about 1,000 individuals settled Finland. And then wow. from there, there was a subsequent bottleneck as people moved into the north. So quite a bit smaller than what you um, would imagine most of the rest of Europe being settled was like. That is amazing. So, so how does that compare to out of Africa, for example? What were the, the size of the waves of people migrating in that case? I, I really have no idea, so I hope that you know. 
Yeah. So when we think about the out of Africa bottleneck, we often use this term effective population size, which is basically the number of individuals that we would effectively see to have the same like genetic diversity as whatever this number is. So when we have these big population expansions um, that have happened, for example, over the past uh, several generations or many decades, um, we only maintain basically the same amount of genetic diversity as the like few generations that came before. Yes, there was this big expansion, but we don't see a massive explosion in genetic diversity because they all descend from the same parents. Yeah. So the effective population sizes in Africa are somewhere on the scale of about 20,000 and the effective population sizes that came out of Africa are something on the scale of roughly 10,000. So about a half um, what you see in Africa. So that's, that's the rough scale, but of course there were, more individuals to make up that effective genetic diversity. I guess this plays into somewhat of what you were saying earlier about there being greater genetic diversity um, in the African continent. And, and I've noticed um, just from reading some of these papers that the scores often typically perform worse um, in, in people with African ancestry. Is that for this reason? Is that the case or is it for, for some other reason? Um, it's sort of twofold. So one is that there are just more genetic variants to begin with, as you're talking about. And the other is that if you're looking across the globe and comparing to the Eurocentric uh, populations that we have measured, um, the populations that are most genetically diverged from the European populations are those African ancestry populations. So it's a combination of things. Okay, great. I, I think we've covered a lot of ground today. So thanks very much for the wonderful discussion. Sure. Yeah. Happy to be here. Is, is there anything else that you think we should cover before we close out? Uh, one other topic that I guess we should sort of touch on is an issue of uh, sort of global parity as we talked about. But since we're talking a little bit about communication and engagement generally, I would say that one area that's really important is to think about what local communities who are typically underrepresented in genetic studies have to gain from those studies and what the balance is with global um, engagement. So for example, when we do genetic studies, I think it's really important that we give something back to the local communities and that this sort of safari research or helicopter research is not happening where geneticists are going into new parts of the world that haven't traditionally been involved in genetics research, taking say samples and doing whatever with those samples and then not returning anything to the communities. So I think we need to have some research capacity building going on for those areas of the world that are newer to genetics research so that we actually can build these fruitful, long-term, sustainable research collaborations and that people who are developing these new technologies can develop them both for um, globally diverse and local communities that haven't really been involved or engaged quite as much, either due to limited resources or just being newer to the genetics landscape. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So, so how do you see that working? Is it, is it about helping to train people in local communities to become geneticists that they can then go on and solve the problems of their local communities? Or, or, or how do you see it playing out? Yeah, absolutely. I think local engagement with diverse um, collaborators is really important. So we have some large scale uh, collaborations going on in, as I mentioned, Eastern and Southern Africa. And so there we're helping train researchers in statistical and population genetics um, so that they actually can take on some of these studies themselves and build future labs that will be leading a lot of these genetics endeavors so that they're can be some local sustainable effort to do this kind of research and that there doesn't necessarily need to be foreign um, aid for all of all of the future, but they can actually start to take on these studies themselves. Yeah, I think it's also worth talking about, even in the US, we have a terrible history of 
experiments like the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, the Henrietta Lacks story, and it's really no wonder that people don't always trust science. I, I feel like it's only recently that we started doing a better job, and, and we obviously still have a long way to go, so there's kind of some, some expected mistrust. Absolutely. It's totally earned that there is a mistrust in the U.S. and across the world um, from the scientist's perspective, or from, you know, from the layperson's perspective to the scientist, and I think that that's earned in the law enforcement field, it's earned in the medical field. Um, and so I think we have a lot of work to do to try to overcome these uh, mistrust issues. So if people want to keep up with your work, I would suggest one thing they do is follow you on Twitter. Uh, your Twitter handle is Genetisaur, G-E-N-E-T-I-S-A-U-R. Uh, I was just wondering, how did you actually get that Twitter handle? It seems like pretty prime real estate to me. Yeah, so we came up with that when I was in grad school. Um, we have this volleyball team that plays at our retreat every year, and we always came up with these nerdy um, animal names that were coupled with something in the genetic space. So our first, they, they kind of declined in originality towards the end, but the first one was Genetosaur. There were subsequent ones like um, PCR Vark. I think towards the very end, it was like BRD unicorns. So <laughs> that's interesting. I always assumed that it was in, from your interest in studying history from a genetics perspective that maybe it was a pun with genes and dinosaur. But now it's it's good to know the true origin. <laughs> yep. Okay, great. I, I would highly recommend following Alicia. She puts out a lot of great new papers, but also she does science communication and commentary on on both good and bad science that comes out. So thank you all uh, for listening. As always, you can send any feedback, including questions you have, guests you'd like to see on the show, or anything else to podcast at sonogenetics.com. We do read and respond to every email. As always, if you like the podcast, we'd love it if you could share it with a friend or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And then finally, feel free to visit our website, sonogenetics.com, if you'd like to learn about some of the interesting research projects we're running or supporting right now, or to learn about some of these topics we discussed today through our blog. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.